Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis, white, gay man, a Chicago resident, and on top of all that, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Dr. Gary Booker. Gary, thank you for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself here, your role at Howard Brown, and your pronouns? Uh, my name is Gary Booker. I'm a family medicine trained physician at Howard Brown, though I am the anal health specialist. My pronouns are he, him, his. Awesome. So today is going to be a fun episode. We're just talking about butts, uh, which is kind of, it might seem like a straightforward topic, uh, especially given like all of our previous episodes are like multi-layered, like sociological, you know, how, how do we get people to take their health seriously? Like these big ideas. Uh, and I'm kind of excited because boiling it down, I mean, it's just about butts today. So uh, hopefully things won't get too graphic, but if you're listening, uh, just be forewarned, that is the content today. Uh, and let's just um, dive right in. And uh, I also am going to make a disclaimer that if I make but puns, they're probably not intentional. Um, but please, if you notice one, uh, leave it in the comments. Tell me <laughs> how many butt puns I made. Uh, but Gary, thank you so much for, for joining. We've collaborated a little bit sure. uh, in the past on a, a TikTok and things. So I'm excited to have a longer conversation with you. Um, you said you're a uh, family medicine trained doctor, but you are right. the anal health specialist at Howard Brown. Right. Uh is, is there, because when I think of like training for doctors, obviously you can specialize in like, you know, if you're a surgeon, like a neurosurgeon or whatever, is there a specialty path for anal health or is that just something that you kind of choose to focus on? So um, really there's not a specific specialty for um, an anal health specialist. Obviously I'm board certified in family medicine, so I cover the whole body basically but um, there are lots of different specialists that have kind of come into this field. Um, I have colleagues that are hematologists, who are oncologists, who are surgeons, who are infectious disease doctors. So there isn't one specialty just for the anus. A lot of people think that a colorectal surgeon is the person uh, that you would probably go to, and in a lot of cases you would. But the colorectal surgeon really focuses more on the colon and the rectum. In the anus, which is what I focus on, is just about an inch inside the opening. Okay, I was about to get into the anatomy of that. So, yeah, anus is the more exterior portion. Exterior of it. portion, okay. right okay. at the opening. Gotcha. About an inch goes about an inch inside. Okay. Good, good to know the the actual terminology there. So, so what's your day to day like at Howard Brown as uh, the anal health specialist? Um, well, seeing patients, obviously. I see patients, but, you know, I really enjoy uh, going to work every day. Um, I, as a family medicine doctor, I used to do just primary care. And in medical school and in residency and then in private practice, I gravitated towards HIV medicine, primary care. 
And then I found that there wasn't anyone that actually took care of this issue uh, of these precancerous lesions. Because when I would refer to colorectal or some other specialists, they would just put a scope in and say, everything looks fine. And I would know better that that wasn't the case. So uh, pardon my butt pun, but I see lots of assholes every day. So it's, uh, it's a fun time. And, um, but I really like being specialized and focusing on one particular area of medicine. Yeah, so you, you saw that need as you were you know, working with people living with HIV of like, this, this is something that I'm noticing needs attention and not there, that's kind of a gap. Uh, exactly. So uh, that's that's so cool that you just and, kind of and the other and, and the other thing is that I get to still work with my uh, gay and lesbian uh, patients, which is what I had with HIV medicine. Yeah. Um, but just in a different aspect, and so I really get to know patients just as well. Um, but and we try to have make it a fun time because a lot of people can be, uh, you know, embarrassed about coming to see me, and we try oh, yeah. to make it easy and relaxing as much as possible. Right. So um, tell me a little bit more about the, the, the precancerous, precancerous lesions and, and how that relates to people living with HIV and, and why that's important for Howard Brown to focus on. Well, we've been seeing a rise in anal cancer and just the general population over the every year. There's about a 2% increase. Um, just in, in it general? Just, it just in general. Oh, wow. But what we've been finding is that the longer people live with HIV, the more at risk they are at developing anal cancer. And so we're looking for precancerous lesions, kind of like in women when they have cervical precancerous lesions to treat those to prevent cervical cancer. So we do the same thing in the anal canal because it's caused by the same virus, human papillomavirus or HPV. Interesting. So you said there was a 2% increase in anal cancer just overall, and that's independent of sexuality and whether or not you're having like receptive anal sex or is it just like exactly but it's a really low number okay so even though it's increasing about two percent a year the the rate and the incidence rate is only about two people per hundred thousand okay so still very low it's still very like low but you know. in hiv positive gay men the rate's 400 per oh. hundred thousand oh it's wow. huge okay so that was the impetus for Howard Brown saying, wait a second, and, you know, if we're providing health care for people living with HIV, especially, you know, men who have sex with men who are living with HIV, this is something that we need to focus on. So Exactly. And we have other high-risk groups at Howard Brown also. So HIV-negative gay men is the second highest mm-hmm. group. And the rate's about 40 per 100, well, about 100 per 100,000. So not nearly as right. high. A fourth as much, but yeah. still obviously elevated and something Correct. to worry about. Okay, so so you would say your job is is primarily focused on, on preventing that progression from precancerous lesions to anal cancer. Exactly. Right. Okay, interesting. Um, I, we talked about it a little bit, but your role as an anal health specialist is definitely... Um, Something where you're like your your bedside manner, so to speak, ha, you know, has to be on point. Uh, it's, it's because dealing with you know butts, it, that's not an appointment that anybody looks forward to, uh, and right. it definitely is a weird dynamic with your doctor. How do you make patients feel at ease? Because I mean, the audience for this podcast is is nationwide. We have some people who are are in healthcare uh, or just care about healthcare. So I think. Um, 
you know, a doctor treating anything, it's, it's good to kind of take notes on like how to, to kind of build that rapport with the patient. And as a patient, it's good to kind of, you know, realize there are doctors out there who are, are good at, you know, kind of creating that atmosphere. But do you have any intentional steps that you try to take to like make people feel at ease? So um, I do because a lot of people come in really nervous. Um, so I really try to do use eye to eye contact when I'm talking to them about everything that we're going to be doing. So in my exam room, um, I have the patient actually facing me, even though I'm typing on a computer so I can look at them. The other thing is that I try not to use um, medical lingo that people don't understand. Um, and because if I do that, I'd have to explain it in lay terms anyway. And it's just easier just to talk like I'm talking to my friend, best friend, right. than to be talking like I'm this highfalutin uh, specialist, which I'm not. Right. They hear multi-syllable words and it's like, I, you know, my eyes glaze over immediately. So I can imagine in the exam room it's similar. And then it's like, well, you're going to do what? Uh, which... We have been in an exam room together to film previous videos for Howard Brown, and the process is not that scary. Uh, that's kind of the purpose of why we made the video is to walk people through of like, you know, this is, everything's going to be okay. Um, but it's nice to know that you have, you know, I like the point about eye contact because I find even in like general, like physicals with a primary care provider, um, it's always, they're like, back is to you typing on a computer, which Granted, we've talked about this before. Systemically, our healthcare system doesn't really allow a ton of time for those like personal connections. But especially with the time limit, like it's rapid fire yes or no questions about your health history, and they're typing away, and you don't really like look them in the eye or like feel like they know who you are aside from like a list of you know symptoms and, and qualities and things. So. I, I appreciate the weight that you give to like a simple thing like eye contact. It, I, yeah, I think that that's really important. Um, with COVID and having to wear masks, it's been a little bit more difficult mm. because facial expressions, especially the mouth, is <laughs> good to look at also. Right. But, um, but just the eyes in general is good. The other thing I also try to do is when I have someone come sit on the exam table, just light touch on their shoulder, mm -hmm. you know, letting them know that they're in a safe place without having to fe uh, be fearful that of whatever's going to be coming next on the exam. Right. That's, that's huge. Um, what's, what are some misconceptions uh, or uh, I guess public feedback you get about your role or anal health in general? So um, I think that most people think that their primary care doctors, if they don't address it, and the patient doesn't say anything, that there isn't anything wrong. Mm. So, which isn't necessarily, it gives you a false sense of security. Um, I think the providers really need to take a role in guiding the patient, letting them know that if they're at risk or not, and whether they need to get checked out. Because a lot of these uh, lesions that you can have, these precancerous lesions, you don't have any symptoms with them. Yeah. And if you have symptoms, then things have already progressed little bit too far and we want to see people before that happens gotcha so a, a big part and i guess that's in part why we're doing this podcast is so people are aware you know that when you think about other specializations in medicine like 
dermatology, everybody looks in a mirror every day and sees their face and, you know, it'd be easy to see, oh, this, this bump is changing or, you know, I'm worried about that. Nobody really pays too much attention to their butt. Like, you know, unless, like you said, unless there are symptoms or things are bleeding or something like that, then you'll notice. But precancerous lesions, if there's no symptoms, nobody's going to like take a mirror down there and make sure everything looks good. Uh, and they should. I should mean, they? that's one thing that I ask. I'm like, okay, have you looked at, at your bottom with yeah. a hand mirror and most people will say no most people that will have do that are people that are really more into bottoming right because you know they're wanting to douche or whatever aesthetics yeah. so they will check things out mm -hmm. but i always ask people if they've looked at their bottom with a mirror to see if any discoloration or anything that they wouldn't be able to tell otherwise and because then that gives me a clue if they say oh yeah occasionally yeah, i look it looks yeah. fine for the most part, I know the outside skin will probably be okay. Right. Interesting. Because I I know, like, <clears throat> obviously, <laughs> growing up, like, we're, we're talking about the specialty as it relates to, like, gay men or men who have sex with men. Uh, would, would there be any benefit? Because, like, I remember growing up uh, in, in Southwest Michigan, there's always, like, you know, as a male, give yourself, you know, a testicular exam once a month. Uh, but there's never any other half to that of, like, maybe you should just, like, continue on down the road there. Uh would that be beneficial? Yeah. Yes. For everybody? High risk people. Okay. Because remember the general population, anal cancer is really insignificant for okay. the most part. But um, if the, some of these high risk groups would actually be doing a self anal exam with their finger mm -hmm. so that they get to know what the inside feels like. So if something changes or right. pops up, that's hard, then they can do that. There's actually a study going on now based out of university of Wisconsin in Madison. That's actually looking at um, HIV positive men with their partners doing self exams and their mm -hmm. partner doing a, a, oh. an exam and looking if they can identify cancers or other types of lesions compared to when the doctor does it so the doctor's doing it and then the person and then their partner does it they are taught how to do a self-exam yeah. and so that study's ongoing actually right now is another way to kind of screen for cancer yeah so so the person's partner would like they'd be like checking each other so to speak yeah i mean it, it makes sense, right? Yeah, I mean, it does. Like, the if there's anybody who knows your body well, it's your partner, in, you know, usually. Uh, so, it, I mean, it makes sense to have, you know, a doctor and a partner and you because one of the three might miss something. So, I guess cover all your bases and, and <laughs> have everybody who comes in contact with your body on a regular basis, which would be your doctor and your partner, make sure everything's good. Right. And, I've had, and I've had a few people that have come in and said, Oh, my partner felt this and I'm concerned about it. Yeah. So there it's happening, but it's not really that often. Right. It makes sense. So it's, it's always about, it seems like the, the tricky part with this specialty, like you said, is the like prevention because, or, or catching things early and Correct. people being aware of it. So it's more of just like educating people that this is something to be on the lookout for so that we can catch it when it's, you know, treatable exactly and and what what does treatment look like if if somebody feels something how, do, how does that so it depends what it is so infections can cause changes in the skin down there so obviously you want to have sti testing and then treat appropriately for that warts sometimes you can feel them sometimes you can't and with those we can use some topical items depends how many warts are there sometimes people need to have surgery 
or we can also just sometimes burn them off in the office. Um, these precancerous lesions that you can't feel and you usually don't have symptoms for, we usually will burn those off in the office. Cancer is a different story. So if it's, uh, depending on the size of the cancer, uh, the standard of care for that is chemo and radiation. So obviously there's lots of side effects after you have that done. So if we can do things prior to that, it would be ideal. Gotcha. So, I mean, there's uh, a variety of tools, I guess, at the, your disposable depend, disposal, depending on what it is. Um, but, okay, that kind of gives me a, an idea. Um, how, I'm always fascinated with this concept of, like, destigmatizing stuff uh, because a lot of the, like... Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, it'll be up at this point. Uh, the podcast we recorded yesterday was about uh, black maternal health. And we realized that a lot of the issues, the health outcomes for um, black birthing parents are lower in part because our society doesn't really do a good job of like talking about stuff and making sure that like you call a spade a spade. Like this is what happens when you get pregnant in the same way that like this is how your anus works. These are things that we need to be on the lookout for. Um how do we either in like sex education in our schools or in, you know, queer spaces or whatever, how do we uh, make it so that taking care of your anus isn't like a taboo subject? That's a good question because I don't have the answer <laughs> for that. Um, I think for the most part, it would begin with seeing a provider that's sensitive to LGBTQ uh, issues. I think that's a, a big thing. And the other thing is that, you know, with um, the internet and people finding lots of information and kind of finding that information on things that they're interested in, having some kinds of spaces in those areas um, may be helpful, but it's it's really tough. Yeah, um, I... I this isn't necessarily related to anal health, but I remember reading, it might've been a Ted talk or something that like the way they did a study in, in I think it was the Netherlands uh, where their sex education there was very like straightforward, like based off the principle of like, you wouldn't hesitate to tell a child how, you know, how an elbow works or like what makes them sneeze. Uh, so you shouldn't hesitate to tell them how everything else works as well. Uh, and so they found that like it, it the, the sense of like uh, ownership and advocacy that kids growing up and then subsequently as adults would have when that was that kind of like pragmatic, straightforward discussion was had um, was like the their healthcare outcomes were obviously great, greatly increased because they felt like they could disclose things to their provider and really be honest and forthcoming and, and make those kind of discussions normal. So uh, it's interesting to kind of obviously anal health isn't necessarily something that we need to be educating our kids on in sex education. Right. But I do think it's interesting to think about like the ways in which we talk about these more quote unquote private health issues, uh, and, and how it affects, um, patients because so, so everybody that you're seeing is already aware that this is, or could be an issue for them. No, correct? no. <laughs> so a lot of times, providers will say you need to go see me mm -hmm. and they don't even say why they need to go see me oh so they come into the office and i'm like so you know why you're here today like, i no. start the conversation like that 
so I can know where our baseline is on where we're starting to talk. Right. Okay. So most of the patients that I see will have had a screen with an anal pap smear and or an anal HPV test. Gotcha. But they won't know why they had those done. Interesting. Okay. So part of this conversation is kind of to help with that. And, and, you know, in general, in the past, patients don't want you to go down there and evaluate your bottom and doctors don't want to go down there and evaluate your bottom. So it's a perfect storm. So it's yeah. easy to avoid because no one's going to bring it up. It's a topic nobody wants to talk about. It's Unless you have an issue. Yeah. And then it's sometimes they don't even want to bring it up. I mean, I've seen some quite a few people that have had really advanced state cancer. Wow. And they've never brought it up. They've had like these symptoms for five years or six years, and it's already progressed that far. And they w- couldn't bring themselves to talk to their doctor about it. And if they did, they would just say, oh, I have a little bleeding or a little itching. And their doctor's like, oh, it's just a hemorrhoid. Here, take this without even looking. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's the, a conversation yeah. that needs to be had as part of every, uh, especially annual exam. Hmm are when someone's new coming into the practice. And then if you find out if they have these risk factors, then you can hone in and know that you need to ask about those types of questions too. Because most of the time the patient won't initiate it unless they have something going on. Right, yeah, that's that's something we've been hearing from every provider we've talked with is that like, the the reluctance to bring stuff up or like the doorknob questions uh dr Corey brought about it that way of like when you're ready to leave the examiner and the patient's like oh wait and i'm also concerned about this and this and this and it's like you should have brought that up because that's more important uh so that's um interesting to me and it's also we talk a lot about like care teams uh at howard brown and on on the podcast about how um it's you know one a specialist or provider or you know member of the team can only accomplish so much it has to be kind of a, a full um full-fledged effort on multiple people's parts to ensure that there's good health outcomes because like you said if the you know uh, the person who's seeing this patient regularly doesn't doesn't bring it up or doesn't uh you know have that conversation then then you're at a disadvantage once the patient finally progresses to you and so there has to be that like level of collaboration between providers in order to get patients where they need to go Correct. And what I really want to try to get the providers in the community to focus on is to identify who's at risk and let the patient know you're at high risk for anal cancer. You need to be evaluated in a, in, with a specialist like me so that they can check for those precancers. That's all they have to know. Right. They just need to really identify who's at risk and then make the referral and stress the importance of it. Right. It's, it's interesting. My uh, mom was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, right before Christmas this year. Um, and it was interesting hearing her feedback about um, mammograms and like keeping proactive about checking up on that because she was, you know, mildly at risk before and she had a mammogram and was about to be like, oh, you know, she was going to go to Florida because there's snowbirds. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't really seem necessary. Right. I can do it in six months when I get back. Uh, but that, you know, mammogram is when they caught the cancer. And because of that, it was very early on and she was able to be treated. And now right. I don't know what her official title is now, whether she's cancer free or just in remission, but uh, right. it was definitely that like level of being proactive that was really instrumental in her having a positive outcome. Um, and it was 
also interesting to hear how uh, all of the providers work together because it was very like they they had the mammogram, the result came back, and like very quickly things started going into motion, and it was just a very like seamless. Right. And she's very fortunate for that because it's not the case everywhere and right. also not the case with every uh, form of cancer or whatever whatever diagnosis um, might be the case. But it just, I think, drove it home for me that like that level of collaboration between providers, you know, even if, if things are what they need to be health-wise is really key for healthy outcomes, um, either to, you know, keep that prevention going and keep things at bay, or if something has progressed to really treat it in an uh, effective and, and timely manner. So, right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, breast cancer and cervical cancer, those are two cancers that there are established teams for. Right. So it's people it, wear the ribbons, everybody's fine talking about those. And, and they know exactly, and, you know, for the most part, things have been set up over the course of many years. In anal cancer, that's kind of, not the case. Right. Are you know it's caused by the same virus, cer- you know, cervical and anal. Right. So you're, yeah, because it's interesting, obviously the incidences are higher, so they weren't higher attention in things, but uh, things like breast cancer or ovarian cancer or whatever, uh, you know, there's entire specialized hospitals dedicated to Correct. treating those. And in anal health, you'd say what you get, like, there's not a fraction of that. You get a room and a floor, you know, there's, and do you, do you think uh, anal health as a specialization is, would benefit from increased, you know, funding or is it awareness or is it logistics? What what would take anal health or anal health awareness to the next level? I think more of awareness right now. And I think that there's going to be a lot more awareness. I mean, screening for anal cancer. There aren't any national standard of care clinical guidelines that say we should be doing that. I think that'll be changing uh, because we just... Uh, stopped enrolling in a major study looking at it's an anal cancer prevention study and we actually showed that treating these precancerous lesions prevents anal cancer so i think as that those results get incorporated into national guidelines the awareness will become more mm-hmm. um but it's just we just finished that piece of the trial back in September. Okay. So it's fairly new and yeah. it takes a long time to get things into national clinical guidelines. Right. So this is still an area of medicine that's progressing and, and right. growing. And I, I think the biggest thing that we could focus on that you see commercials for is vaccinating our young kids, um, you know, nine and up before they start having sex with the HPV vaccine because it's actually the only cancer prevention vaccine that's out there Mm. and actually prevents throat cancer caused by HPV, cervical cancer, and anal cancer. Right. So no matter orientation or your preferred partner, that vaccine is clutch, so so to speak. It's great. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. And it it strikes me that, like, especially touching on, like, young people getting vaccinated for HPV because I get the feeling, I don't know if there's numbers to substantiate this, but like our young people are uh, more and more queer or at least more and more uh, open to the possibilities of different kinds of partners. So is there, uh, do you think that there will be like an increased demand for specializations like yours or is that a stretch? I think that group at that age isn't thinking about HPV vaccine. Right. And even though vaccine rates are increasing a little, it's still horrible Mm. 
because there are so many parents out there who think that if they vaccinate them with the HPV vaccine, that's going to increase their urge to have sex. Right. In the same way that like, if we <laughs> teach them how a penis works, that means immediately they're going to want to have sex. And it's like, that's right, it's it. crazy. Right. I, I mean, I even remember that, you know, getting physicals in high school and stuff like the, like the doctor brought up the HPV vaccine, like, you know, well, we might want like, she, she's just very like, non-committal right weird about the whole thing and uh, you know it makes perfect sense to vaccinate everybody regardless of you know their sexual activity or anything but even the doctor at that stage was like we might not really need to do this but it's you know it's an option it would probably be good but if your parent doesn't want you to like that was southwest michigan so very much a product of the geography and things um yeah but the parents have to approve kids getting vaccinated So this isn't one that the kid can actually go in for and say, I want to be vaccinated for this because they probably aren't going to the doctor by themselves. Why did I just realize that kids can't make their own healthcare decisions? That makes perfect sense. Obviously that parents have to approve vaccinations, but like if, if as a provider, this is a hypothetical and kind of a tangent, but if as a provider, you had a kid come in and say, I want the HPV vaccine, but their parent says, no, you have to listen to the parent. If they're minors. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and if they're coming to the doctor, they're usually with their parent. Yeah. For In the, the most exam part. room, the parent, well, I guess it depends on the age. That depends on the age. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is a whole systemic thing because not only would you need to make sure that kids are educated and informed, but the parents who are making the decisions also have to be as well. Really the parents. Interesting. So we, we've kind of discussed broadly anal health and why it's important i want to move on to something also in anal health but i mean our listeners uh, and especially like uh, a good chunk of hard runs patients is just uh, gay men or men who have sex with sex with men let's talk about um anal sex so what are some mistakes people make when it comes to either douching or just anal sex in general uh what, what do you recommend Um, so in general mistakes, um, I think one of the big things that's always a question about douching Mm -hmm. and, um, so a lot of people like to mix different things in the douche solution like vinegar and really, yeah. Oh, so, um, you know, people, if they're going to be douching should just use plain warm tap water. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing is not to go crazy with full, you know, spigot of water, Mm -hmm. um, because you know, that's, you have delicate tissue there that can, if it's like, there's lots of pressure, like the actual force of the water, the force of the water can power washing our intestines. Right. So we don't need to do that. Gotcha. Okay. So like over douching or over cleaning, what, what are like, what happens if that like irritation of the tissue, obviously lots of irritation. So people can come in, you know, that douche a lot that are obsessed with trying to be overly clean um complaining of a lot of anal symptoms just vague things like sometimes you can have discharge or drainage mm-hmm. um itching uh just feeling discomfort, some discomfort yeah. pain gotcha um so that kind of yeah stuff we kind of counsel on i i receive like instagram targeted ads for uh a company that like makes a special douching solution is that uh something that is real or is that like snake oil so to speak um it's probably you shouldn't be using that really 
I want to look it up now because I want to see what they're like purported. Let's see what the ingredients are, are um, if you're looking that up. Cleansing done right is their um, tagline here. And um, I'm interested to see what actually is founded by a doctor. Um, because there's damage with improper cleansing and care. Um, of course. I just found what they purport to make, uh, you know, why this is great. Apparently 90% of people use tap water to prepare for bottoming. Tap mm-hmm. water and store-bought enemas um, are either hypo or hypertonic, cause significant cellular damage, uh, allegedly. Isotonic solutions um, do not disrupt these cells. They simply rinse. So a hypo... A normal normal tonic would be like normal saline, like a right. sodium salt solution that you would get in, a, in an IV. But the amount of douching that you would be doing with tap water, you're not doing it constantly. Right. So that. So is un- not unless true. you're like bottoming a lot, like an, an two or three times of, a day, right. and you're cleaning yourself out and. In between every partner, yeah. then like maybe some specialized solution would be preferable. But and, and even with with that, if that was the frequency and using that solution would not be a good thing either, because you want to have normal. You should have a normal flora, normal bacteria. Right, your body has a mechanism. So you can't be flushing all of that out because that's what we use normally. Right. We uh, yeah, I just posted a TikTok about um like genital healthcare uh and it was the same um for people with vaginas that like uh overcleaning is something that people are obsessed with it being like super clean and everything but that a lot of times like you said we we have a system in place there's what's the word you flora flora like bacteria microbiome it's a whole little ecosystem it, you have a whole little ecosystem okay. for your entire body what and i mean? just recently saw an ad for anal rejuvenation oh gee like, yeah what? is that a thing <sighs> like what is that so um i from what i understand i mean there obviously there's people out there that have skin tags or blemishes or skin discoloration and they want that to be gone my problem is, is that a lot of these skin tags or discolorations can be precancerous type things so they're seeing someone who doesn't really know how to spot the serious types of things, and then they're masking an issue that actually should be treated. Interesting. Um, I don't know of any way to make the sphincter more tight. I don't know of any, you know. It, right. It's, so it's kind of all over the place. Gotcha. And I actually um, texted my colorectal surgeon friend in New York and asked him about that. And he said it was all... Hogwash. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the other, uh, the, this, this segment's funny to me. So I'm on Twitter and gay Twitter in and of itself is a weird ecosystem. There's always like a, they call it like the main character of the day. Either it's like a gay that has like an atrocious opinion and people are shaming them for them or they, they like posted something and I don't know it's it's this whole thing but recently there has been this string of like shock value clickbaity videos that people post um 
I don't know why. I guess they it might they might be into it, or they assume that there would be other people out there that are into it. But recently, it's been of like people putting things inside them in their butts, specifically that, like I don't think belong there. Uh, uh, and I'll just give you a list, um, and I want you to tell me if like potential hazards or, or uh, things that could go wrong in this scenario, um, because. Uh, I was, um, granted, I, all of these videos I've heard about or seen against my will. I wanted to clarify that. Uh, so one video was, um, a man putting sand, uh, up his backside, like a lot of sand. Um, dangerous, correct? Not something. <laughs> um, sand is unusual. I don't get it. Clearly. But, um. Like, like, I guess... Could that, like, scratch the, like, lining of somebody's anus? It could. I just don't know how they're... I'm trying to visualize how you would be putting it in with, like, a funnel or something. I but I, I, I think I, if you... It was, like, an alarming amount. Like, a cup, two cups worth that came out I think there are a lot person. more dangerous things than probably sand. Because sand's smooth and small. Runs, and, I guess, technically. But, but you do have crypts. And things in the anal canal that, what you know, that? particles. So at the, um, about an inch inside, um, it's called the dentate line. So you have natural crypts that actually secrete um, um, crypts. Mucus. How do you spell crypts? C R Y P T S. Oh, crypts. actual, mm -hmm. like. And that you secrete mucus to help with bowel movements and whatever. Right. Also that helps also with anal sex. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe some of those crypts to get plugged and cause an abscess or... So it's not a good thing to do, but I could think of worse things, I, okay. I guess. Okay. I'm okay. always thinking of degrees. Right. I Yeah, I just... Um, Interesting. That's um, odd. We'll continue with this short list, but I have a follow-up question on that. Um, I saw somebody put... Um, like dumplings, like like the the um, Asian food uh, uh -huh. in, and when it comes to like things that otherwise would be edible, uh, is there any specific danger things to, for people to watch out for if that's something uh, that they're interested probably in? Probably not that much, unless it's something that's really spicy. Okay. It can be really irritating. Ooh, right, that's honestly something I didn't some think about. spicy type. Okay. Uh, Tomka um, guy soup or something. I don't know. <laughs> fair. Um, when it when it when it comes to anal play of like foreign bodies, is there ever a risk of things getting lost? Yes. So depending on the size, are important. And, and if you go past the sphincter, mm -hmm. um, you know you can get some negative pressure, and it can kind of get sucked in. Gotcha. So, but like, and then it's kind of hard to get out because the sphincter clamps down. Oh, and that's why it's usually once it kind of is in there, some people have some difficulty removing. Because mm -hmm. I was thinking, like, the natural flow of the body is obviously out. So, how could something get go up or get stuck up if that's not the natural so it, direction? <laughs> so it covers the circumference, uh -huh. and so then there's pressure there air back behind and it can just oh, you know yeah. I guess there's like physics at play there that I probably don't understand um, what what I my first question made me think of um, 
in terms of like sexuality and like people that are against gay people, there's always the argument that like it's not natural. But you mentioned that you have crips that uh, secrete uh, what, mucus. Mucus. That's what I was thinking. Oil is that? Mucus uh, that aids in obviously receptive anal sex. Is that is that why they're there, or is that just a that's for bowel movements. Okay. So so the the statement, it's not natural, like having receptive anal sex is not something that our body is set up for. But there's lots of men and women that have anal sex. Right. I mean, people, so people they do it. So say but that, but... When you think of like vaginal sex, obviously there's like biomechanisms in place to like aid, like even from like the way like penises are constructed and vagina, like it's, it's all... The, well, the main reason is to have children. Right. So, pleasure is different, right? Than the evolution and the reproduction piece of it, right? So, <laughs> I just hear like conservative people like it's not natural. So there really is no like built-in biomechanisms for like receptive anal sex to make it easier. Like we, that's why we have to do. That's why we have to take all those extra steps because it's not something our bodies are like set up to do well naturally. Correct? Right. Okay. I mean, but douching is more for people just wanting to be clean. You True. don't necessarily have to. True. And I mean, like, in quote-unquote straight sex or, or vaginal sex, there's an equal amount of, like, prep and... Prep. Meh. Or they can be on their period. Right. So there's all sure. kinds of Yeah, I mean, things. sex with whatever organ is not a clean uh, topic. Anyway, you cut it. So I, I guess I'm, you know, whatever. Either way, uh, but I'm, I was just curious if there was like a similar uh if our if our body was predisposed to anal health as well but i I guess not there's mucus there and there's mucus that gets secreted in the vagina so it works well yeah i guess in both areas not what they were intended for but right interesting so uh in terms of anal health what what do we want to leave with our listeners whether they are um, somebody who has receptive anal sex or just engages in anal sex in general, uh, whether they're a provider that treats that or just somebody that wants to edu- educate themselves. Uh, what are our nuggets of wisdom that we're sending home? So my nuggets of wisdom. I don't know if I like that phrase now because I'm, I'm second guessing all I, the words I, no, <laughs> I use I, in this episode that, and whether or not that's they good. Our, our, you know, the recommendations that I really tried to focus on is that you need to know if you're in a high risk group. So, and if you are in a high risk group, you need to be more aware of how your bottom feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also need to take a look at it with the mirror. And if you really want to be more in tune, you should do a self anal exam so that you become familiar with what you feel like is normal for you on the inside. I think in general, for the general population, they should also be in tune if they have symptoms that's going on for a couple of weeks at least then they need to be able to talk to someone and get it checked out. And they need to be on the aggressive side to make their provider actually do an exam and check it out and not just kind of blow it off like it's a hemorrhoid or something that's not significant. Right. You have to be, you have to advocate for that. You have to advocate for yourself. Yeah. I think overall, I, that like sense of self-advocacy and, um, self-awareness when it comes to your body, I think is big. Um, I think across multiple conditions, whether it's 
you know, anus or otherwise, it's easy if it's not, you know, urgent or if there's not something actively happening to kind of just like, well, you know, out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. Um, but that, that taking time to check in with yourself physically, mentally, emotionally to, to be aware if there's any issues or changes that you need to bring up to a doctor or a counselor or whatever it is, um, taking that time to, to really prioritize your health is, is important, whether it's anal cancer or otherwise. So it's a good lesson for everybody to take away. Uh, I could, I, this has been a fun episode. I appreciate this. Like I said, uh, a lot of our other podcast topics are very uh, high concept, multi-layered issues, big uh, socio, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Just, 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 just hard issues to tackle. Uh, and this seems a little bit more like concrete uh, and <laughs> easy to think about. So uh, I, I appreciate uh, you coming in and giving giving us your time and educating the population about butts. Uh, so thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that has been our episode about butts. If you are curious about anything we mentioned in the episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening. 